Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 71, A Healthy Church. We've got an exciting topic for you today, the role of the church in our life and how to, how to find a church and how to build a church. That is a healthy, life-giving church. It's something in it for all of us. We're in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. So if you don't have your Bible, run, get one. Come right back for this week's episode of Thread. All right, we're back. Uh, Thread is a special kind of Bible study. It's for leaders it is the goal of my life and Sherry's life that we'll do a good job raising our own six children to serve the Lord powerfully and that we can make an investment in the lives of a thousand more emerging leaders. And so that's why we do the Thread Podcast, and it's, uh, it's my whole heart in it. And leaders can't be leaders without spiritual strength, and nothing is going to give you strength except time alone with God and time in His Word and fellowship with other believers. So that's what God's Word is here to do for us, and there are very few places you can turn these days and find a verse-by-verse Bible study. And so that's what we're trying to do here with Thread. Let's talk about it. A healthy church, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Uh, I travel a lot, and uh, we live in Thailand, and between traveling and living uh, where we do, it's had a real impact on uh, our church going. And I, I miss that, and my family misses it. Uh, I would say, as I look back over it, uh, many of my greatest seasons of spiritual growth took place in church. It was because of a connection with a life-giving church. And actually, I would, I would say every believer needs to purpose that at some point in their life, they're going to be part of planting a healthy, life-giving church in a city or an area that does not have one. Uh, such a church is, I think, the greatest contribution that believers can make to their city is to be part of establishing a healthy, life-giving church. You know, I think of the impact that uh, Jim Simbala's leadership has had in building the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City, and that's just one example of a church that's in love with its city, that loves the people, that really is a get-its-hands-dirty church, but also a church full of worship and solid preaching that exalts Jesus. And, you know, a healthy church, it's just an amazing uh, instrument of God's grace. Uh, so let's look at the New Testament church today. I want to read a couple verses here to get us started. It said, Then those who gladly received His word, this is Peter's sermon, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. We're going to continue on through that passage. Well, let's look at their building. You know, here we had a church of 3,000 people, and uh, let's describe the building that they had. Oh, that won't take long. They had no building. They found that they didn't need a building. They had houses for small group things, and they did their public meetings in public places. Uh, the lack of a building was probably one of the key elements 
in the New Testament church's ability to impact their city. And we really need to ponder this for just a minute because I traveled around and I have, I remember the, the era where church buildings reached a million dollars in value, like we needed a million dollar church building. And nowadays I go to churches that have $30 million, $60 million. Uh, here in Asia, there's a church that bought, I mean, it was hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like, oh, come on, your building is that important. But, you know, the, the, the big argument goes, you know, God deserves the best. We cannot impact our city without this new ministry center. Well, the New Testament church, now, I've been on both sides of this. We pastored a church of over a 1,000 people in Metro Manila. For 10 years, we had no building. Uh, our church met in a movie theater. Maybe I'll talk about that in a minute. We got to a point in our growth where it was complicated. Our, our, we were doing a lot of ministry. We needed a nerve center. We needed a mothership. And having one helped us a lot to coordinate our efforts. Uh, but we, I really hated to ever leave that, that theater because it did something for us. The New Testament church lacked a building, and that probably helped them impact their city more than anything else because buildings insulate you. Um, the New Testament church, when they had rallies, they were in public places. Now, when you do your, your evangelistic events in the public places, in a marketplace, in a, somewhere that people are milling around, when you do your baptisms in a public place, in a park, and everybody can gather around and say, what are those people doing? You know, on the one hand, it is messy. It attracts concern from the community. It may even attract interference, but it's a central element in the spread of movements. You, don't, you go back to the civil rights movement. You talk about uh, anti-apartheid movement. Go back through history, all the great movements that were successful. And today we look at them and say, wow, you know, what an awesome thing those people did in their lifetime. Uh, conflict and confrontation was part of that. And you cannot get your message out in public if you won't go out in public. And, uh, you know, we were in the Philippines in the 90s, and the 90s in the Philippines were the most dynamic period of church growth a nation has ever had. A uh, new church was planted every eight hours. The church that we pastored had, I would say, a minimum of 25 people every single week coming to Christ. And, and this went on for a decade, and uh, we weren't the only church with that kind of uh, fruit. This was going on everywhere, but part of the secret was we stayed in the community. I didn't know anybody that had their own building. Uh, everybody was renting any public place from a school to a place in a shopping center to places in office buildings. Uh, I remember my first uh, six months in the Philippines, I was in an elevator in the capital city. We were going up. I didn't know my way around very much then, and uh, as we were going up, it was about mm, 6 o'clock in the evening, and I heard music. I heard worship being sung, and um, I noticed everybody in the elevator kind of shifting, and you know, the elevator went past that floor, and we went up a few more floors, and then there was music. The same thing was happening. There was singing going on. There was praising going on, and someone in the in the elevator, just turned and said, the born-agains. It was a movement. I mean, it was in the newspapers. There were editorials against it, and I'd never been in an environment like that, but wow, it was powerful. And part of it was we didn't build a nice, insulated place to keep ourselves separated from the world. 
Uh, as I've said in previous podcasts, I think we've quit preaching almost entirely. We've quit preaching. We still call what we do Sunday morning preaching, but New Testament preaching took place in public places. It was out where people live. And we do it inside the building. It's nice and safe and neat and air-conditioned. And, you know, we can get the, the projector going and the smoke if we need it. And the music can build it. And the New Testament church didn't have any of that. It was just flat. No PA system. They're outside. It's just the power of God, the Word of God, the power of the Holy Ghost doing things right in front of people. Uh, so let's go deeper. They didn't have a building. So a building is not a secret to church growth. If only I had an awesome building and a great place. See, what, you, what we end up doing is we attract people for the wrong reasons. You can attract people who are not spiritually hungry. They are not seeking the kingdom of God. They don't want to change their life. Uh, but with the comfort, and it's like, oh, we have snacks for the kids, and they've got a jungle gym, and that's not life change. You know, that is not life change, and it won't change them. The New Testament church was about transformation, radical transformation. So let's go deeper and look at what life in a New Testament church body was like. Since when we say church, we do not mean building, and this is not an isolated situation, okay? The New Testament church, let's stretch this out, for 50 years had no buildings. No one had one. For 100 years, no buildings. 150, 200 years, 250. It was 300 years before they had a building. That's a long time to learn that they can function. A lot of people would argue today that the, the biggest number of Christians in any nation is China, and you will have to go a long way to find church buildings in China. There's the official three self-church, and they do have buildings. But the majority of Chinese believers are from house churches scattered all over the nation. And really, the only, uh, the only problem with a house church is that they grow. You get into a house church, and if it's run well, it won't be too long until you're too big for the house. And then you have to figure out what you do with all these people in your house and how you're going to seat them. And um, It's just beautiful, the power. When you take away the institutionalism of a church and you take away the professional um, clergy approach to church and say, oh, well, only a specialist can run a church. When you take all that away and you say, if God calls you, you know, you can plan a church, you can be part of a church. God calls people to lead churches. God calls people to work with those who are the leaders. And if you'll be part of that, and if you'll do it the New Testament way, you will see people's lives changed. But let's look at what their church body life was like. We've already read the text uh, from verses 41 and 42. It says that the new church is now 3,000 people strong. There were 120 in the upper room, Jesus had 500 who saw the, uh, the ascension. So let's, let's round it and say 1,000. So now there's 4,000 believers in Jerusalem, and the Scripture says they continued steadfastly. In other words, they had an earnest dedication. They were into their church life. It wasn't just a casual thing. I don't know if I want to go or not. They were earnestly dedicated. It wasn't just a Sunday thing. It was their lifestyle. And they were dedicated to the following four things. Number one, they continued, verse 42, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. 
Now, that word doctrine in a modern era has come to just mean mental ideas. Your mental ideas about God need to be correct and line up with the Scripture. And we've had great doctrinal battles uh, about one thing or another. When the New Testament uses the word doctrine, it has a much broader understanding of what doctrine means. It does mean truth. It means Bible truth plus lifestyle the way you live out the truth in your daily uh, movements in the marketplace, in your family, in business, in education, in government. As the Word of God impacts your life, that is doctrine. And so they were hanging around, continuing steadfastly. They were earnestly dedicated to modeling after the apostles about how God, what was God's truth. They needed to hear the Scriptures and how to live out God's truth. That's what they were focused on. Now, the apostles were not a privileged superclass who had all kinds of perks and privileges, and no one could touch them, and they had private jets. Uh, They were teacher leaders who knew the people. They were known in their congregations. Their task was simple. They were to transmit the lifestyle and teachings of Jesus Christ. That was their mandate. They had no authority outside of that. Their job was to take what they had learned from Jesus and pass it on to other people. They explained through the Old Testament prophecies who Christ was because there was no New Testament in those days. They hadn't been written yet. They were living in Old Testament light. And then secondly, they had to teach the people how to apply the teachings of Jesus in real-life settings and they explained the gospel message to people because that's the, that's the call. That's the big message God's given us, the promise of change, the offer of salvation, and explaining how Jesus brought that to us through his death and resurrection. And then they had to teach the people how to live it out, how to share their faith. And the believers that gathered there constantly, they gathered actually daily, verse 46 says, every day, There was a meeting of some kind. Uh, The believers postured themselves as learners. They came to learn. They were eager to walk away with something. You know, is that your approach when you go to church? I love it when people come and bring notebooks, and it's like, and they got a big old Bible, and it's like, I am serious. I am here to learn. And so the people came to learn. The teachers showed great humility, and they showed great courage, courage to confront the culture, and to confront them in public. These teachers knew Jesus, and they were radically obedient to him, and they were committed to pay the price of being leaders under Christ. And whatever it took, you know, they were willing to pay that price. And you saw their teachers. They suffered greatly for being teachers because they did their teaching in public, but they wanted to confront the culture. It was a prophetic calling. They were confronting the culture with the promises of God and with the offer of salvation and change. The second thing it says they were committed to, besides the apostles' doctrine, was fellowship, koinonia. Koinonia is a, that's the Greek word for it. It's a unity, a deep unity. It's brought about by the Holy Spirit. You can't bring it about any other way. And what koinonia does is it, it shares the bond of fellowship Uh, First of all, it bonds you with Christ, that I have fellowship with Christ. I have an intimate relationship, the the deepest... uh, 
It's not just worshiping him as Lord. It is, it is connecting to him in love. There is a fellowship, a brother's heart, a, a, you know, a father, son, a, there's a bond. There's a family bond. We feel it with Christ and it's so strong with Christ that koinonia binds us to everyone else who has that fellowship with Christ. It's not just church membership. It is membership in Christ. And as you are one with Christ, then you are one with everybody else who's one with Christ. And they were devoted to that, that heart bond. It's a trust. It's a childlike trust in Jesus. It's a childlike trust in the brotherhood. And and look, you need to find you a church that you can be loyal to, a real, you know, have a real part in sharing the load of the ministry there, that you can invest the hours that you need to develop those relationships and live out the kingdom life together and do ministry as a brotherhood. There's a there's a depth and a sweetness that you can only find in that situation. Uh, I will give nothing from my early days again in the Philippines as uh, our, you know, our family plus uh, the Kairos family, the Silva family, the Shiestapur family, Freddie Stelton, uh, Ramona Megtopoulos, John and Lanny Tan. You know, we had a fellowship in the inner circle where we, you know, we bled for each other. We were, we were there, Ricky Ishak and Adji Ishak, you know, where we were living for each other. We were pouring out our life together to serve the people of God and were willing to do anything um, out of love for each other and for the people. And the bond of brotherhood that we had was so sweet, so precious, so sincere and and we lived up to it. You know, no one in that circle ever hurt anyone else in that circle. And it, it let me see how high and how noble human relationships can be. And I got that in the church. You need that. If it's only with three people in a very small house church or a campus ministry or trying to do something in your workplace, you need a fellowship and a bond of fellowship. And I pray that for you this week that God will help you find it, and if you've already got it, He'll help you appreciate it and pour some extra energy into it because God has called us to function as part of the church. Uh, I'm not going to get through this passage, but it's enough said. He's, He's called us to function as part of His church and to love the church and to sacrifice ourself for the church the way Christ has sacrificed Himself for the church. So, Love your church, love your leaders, support them. And uh, if you don't have a church home like that, ask God to help you find one. If you can't find one, join together with brothers and pray about starting one. You don't need all the things that you might think you need. You just need willingness and start having times of prayer and fellowship and singing and worship. God will birth a church through you, but we need the church. We don't need to be solo Christians. We need to be bound to the people of God in our city and all over the world. And the Holy Spirit will flow through you, and He will bring the grace of God into the lives of people. You know, there's nothing like having a healthy church so that when you're ministering to someone, you can say, hey, come go with me, and you take them to this place that is life-giving. So God bless you and your life in the church. Uh, If you'd like to write me directly, I would love to hear from you. Chuck at Quinley.com. Check us out. 
uh, in the Android marketplace. We've got an app for this show on your cell phone, also in the iTunes store. That's all for now. See you next time on Thread.